Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Capital Club podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation today. I have with me Adam Rosen. Adam's an entrepreneur that loves to support business owners and share his roller coaster startup journey to help those in a similar path. From tech founder of an acquired startup to coaching hundreds of entrepreneurs to traveling the world, building his lead generation business where he helps startups get more sales appointments hassle free. So let's jump right into it. It was interesting on the pre call, you know, you, you're very successful, you've got this business. And I, I, towards the end, we have a lot of commonalities. I remember we're from the same part of the world and knew some of the same folks. I was like, why are you doing this? And, and you, you basically said you just want to be helpful to people. So as a roundabout way to just asking the typical, give me your background, like what motivates you to come on these shows and tell your story? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, Brian, I appreciate you having me on. It's always good. Uh, always good chat with you. So thank you first and foremost for having me on. But the way I, I always describe it, anytime I get on a podcast, the, the three things for me is one, just meeting people like you, you know, people that are running podcasts, you guys tend to be people that are doing interesting things and interesting people to that, uh, that I think are good to meet with. And I'm a big believer in what Jim Rohn always says, you're the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. So I was figuring if I can spend time with people that are above me and doing interesting things, that'll just naturally bring me up. So that's one, two, like you mentioned, anytime I can add value, that's always what I love to do. And then number three, look, if I get new business from it, I'm not going to be complaining about it either. So those are the three big things that I get from uh, from being on it. And also people just love the most interesting people are ourselves. So in, in business and sales and just relationships in general, the more you can get people talking about themselves, the better they think the conversation goes. So I guess there's probably also an ego side where I get to talk and share more about my story, which I probably didn't mention in those top three, but that must be something at least hidden in my subconscious too. Yeah. And, and based on the conversation and your background, fair to describe you as a serial entrepreneur? Yeah. I'm not a big fan of that term, but it's like the easiest way to describe it that I've probably <laughs> so become. What term would you use? No, that is actually the best term. For whatever reason, I never loved that term. It just seemed kind of corny and cliche. But as I try to describe, I guess, who I am, I, I, that is probably the best way to describe it. Yeah. So tell the story. Like what what's, you know, you've got this kind of school hard knocks type harsh reality being an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. maybe kind of start us off there. Yeah. So I never worked a, a real like quote unquote nine to five job coming out of college. I, I started an entrepreneurship program my senior year of school. I went out to a college just outside of Boston, a teeny tiny liberal arts school. And uh, I'd start an entrepreneur program and it went well. They said, Hey, Adam, do you want to continue running this program, get a one-year MBA? So I did that. 
And then uh, three weeks before I graduated from there, I met my original two co-founders. We started what ended up being my first business, and it was basically a college recruiting platform. So we had a platform of about 100,000 student organizations from colleges all across the country. And then we uh, we partnered. So our customers were companies like Bank of America, Amazon, AT&T. They wanted to recruit those students, and they also wanted to get data on those students through our surveying mechanisms on our platform. So did that for five years. We were acquired back in 2019, but I always like to say when I say I was acquired, our company was acquired, people think, you know, I moved out to Hawaii, which I technically did, but the second two parts I didn't do, you know, retired at 26, 27, 28 years old, you know, sipping my ties on the beach every day. That was not the reality. The reality which was much more about, hey, I want to make sure our investors get as much money back as possible. Our customers end up in a good place. Our students end up in a good place. And my, my business partner and I can move on to uh, whatever is next in our journey. Yeah. And, and the school is Endicott. I've actually been been there. We played you guys in lacrosse. So the power goals, I'm familiar with uh, the campus and have fond memories. It was like snowing and, uh, yeah. you know, early in the year, for sure. I remember. So let's talk about this first. I mean, you probably hate this term, but, you know, liquidity event or or this transaction. Like, how was it for you personally? I mean, let's forget about the numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, was it emotional? Did you have trouble processing it? How much of your identity was wrapped up in that first company? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I always say, and I'm 30 years old today, and I'm hoping that a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, I'll be calling myself a pup for where I am currently today. I look back as a 22, 23-year-old kid starting the company as just a pup. And the reason why I say that is when I started the company and even while running that company, I thought I'm going to do this the rest of my life. It's IPO or bust, like no ifs, ands, or busts, uh, no ifs, ands, or busts. This is just who I am and what I'm going to do. So it's a great question because my identity was wrapped up in this. I'd say when we made that decision to sell, it was the harsh reality where we could have continued to raise money from our investors, but we knew it wasn't the right thing to do. So when we had to, my business partner, I look at, look at each other in the eyes and say, hey, we need to move on from this company and we need to look for a, a, an acquisition target for this. That was the toughest pill to swallow. But no, I mean, once you make that decision, I'm big on that with anything in relationships and business, whatever. Once I make that decision to move on, I just want to get it done with. And I, I kind of start to lose that emotional side of it. Now that you're on the other side, do you have any perspective on, I mean, there's obviously talent, but there's some luck involved, right? Do you have perspective now in terms of having a successful initial startup that did go through acquisition? I mean, that's not very common. There's always luck involved with with everything. Absolutely. And I think for us, and again, ours is different. We didn't, we didn't have some big exit, which, you know, would be truly celebrated. Like, yes, it's an acquisition and there is value in that, but it wasn't some, you know, big exit that I think was really worth a celebration. But yes, I'd say the biggest perspective that I have after going through that exit is the importance of building to sell from the start. We didn't build our company to make it a sellable asset from the beginning. I got great advice from good friends and mentors saying that we needed to do that. But by the time we started to build out the systems, it was already too late to really make it a a high value sellable asset. So that's why everybody I advise startups, small businesses, I don't care if you're a small accounting firm, it does not matter. You need to build the systems to make your business a sellable asset right from the jump. And that that going through the acquisition process was my biggest learning because you learn, is our tech actually sellable? Yes or no. Ours really wasn't that sellable. Is our customer list 
a sellable asset? Well, yes, a little bit, but not as valuable as it could be. Our students, are they sellable? Yes, but not quite as valuable as they could be. So I really learned the process. You need to make each part of your business a sellable asset if you want to get 2x, 10x, 20x value a value to your to your to your company. And and that's the game in a lot of ways, right? I'm a member of YPO and they have huge amount of resources to help people kind of nurture, grow, and exit, right? And it's this kind of three to five to 10 year journey. Could you maybe go a little bit more granular? I think we all have a very good sense of probably what to do, how to optimize a sale, but what are some things that you feel like you didn't do? You left money on the table, big mistakes that you see entrepreneurs making. And let's start from kind of day one when they're putting together the business plan. So from day one, is we act too quick where we just we feel like we need to get all these short wins so we don't think about the long term foundation so what am i what do i mean by that i mean when we're getting a new customer are we thinking about what we got one customer let's get that second customer instantly or are we thinking about how do we make sure that that one customer is the happiest customer in the world and they're going to renew over and over and over again and they're going to give us more money over and over and over again. So that's number one, is we're thinking too much about growth. I hear it in the startup world all the time. Red is the new black. Scale before you're ready. I call BS on that. That's what we did. It was, we got one customer, great, let's get the next customer. Versus how do we make that one customer the happiest son of a bitch in the world? Until you do that, you don't have a true foundation and a true sellable asset. So that's number one. Number two is as entrepreneurs, a lot of times we think, and I was very guilty of this, and sometimes I'm still guilty of this. I'll do it versus I hiring someone else to do this. And we end up getting stuck in the weeds, doing a bunch of stuff that not only isn't worth our time, but actually adds no value to the long term. Now, if you're in the weeds and you're eating the dirt, that's great because you need to learn what the system, what how do you even create that system? But I see so many entrepreneurs, myself, I was included in that too, that just did all these tasks instead of building a repeatable system that another hire could implement for you. Because again, until you do that, that means you are the asset to your company versus your business being the asset versus the system being the asset. So those are the two biggest mistakes I constantly see. And again, we made as well. Yeah, I, I remember when I first got into the business and I had a mentor tell me, <laughs> he'd give me a lot of advice, but so whatever you do, just don't name the company after yourself <laughs> because then you've got all this goodwill and value yeah. tied up in it. But I certainly have suffered from micromanagement, fear of delegation. I've tried to push through those things, but, you know, I was talking about this with somebody at lunch today, asking me if I golfed, like, man, I have time for golfing. Like I've been grinding it out for 10 plus years, 12, 15 hours a day, but you do have to have that perspective of, is it highest and best use for the enterprise? Right. And I think that's a big lesson I've learned over the last two or three years is doing some of the things that I was doing was, was probably not highest and best use for the enterprise. And I'm sure you've seen that play out a number of times as well. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I, similar to you, like I, I, I'm not exaggerating. I don't wear this as a badge of honor even because I actually think it's a bad thing. When I see people that are working such insane hours like this, I used to be like, wow, that's amazing. That's so cool. But now I'm like, well, you're not doing a good enough job of building systems to really allow your business to scale without you. Um, and there's days, of course, you need to put in the work and you can't, you, there's no substitute for hard work. Uh, but I think that there is a tipping point for that. But you know, I, I was in the office every day, 6 a.m., Monday through Saturday, usually wouldn't leave till 7, 8, 9 p.m. at night. Sunday, we'd go in later at like 9 a.m., leave the office around 5 or 6 p.m. on a Sunday. So it was nonstop. But the problem that I would see is there was days I'd leave, I'd be like, what the hell did I even accomplish? I just did a bunch of like 
work that's just in the weeds. I never, got, I didn't get ahead on anything. I'm just starting to catch up on things. I'm just starting to get my head above water versus how do I build real foundation and real systems so that other people can implement that. Because if I'm just doing things by myself, that's great. I can get it to a certain level. But imagine if you have five people working on that same thing, 10 people, 20 people, 50 people, think about how much faster you can grow. So let's get a little bit nitty gritty here. You, you're interesting in that you do sales and marketing. Most people have a very bright line between the two of them. I'd love to hear your definition of sales versus your definition of marketing. I'd say on the spot, if I were to come up with that, I would, because I don't spend much time thinking about it, but I would say marketing is all about generating demand and sales is all about getting through the finish line. Biggest misconception people have about marketing is that you need to sell BS in order to get people interested. In term, in other words, it's okay to be real and genuine. You don't have to put on the facade and the smoke and mirrors to get people to engage. In fact, exactly. In fact, it's the complete opposite. Is the more real, the more you can accept, hey, this is what's not great and being open about that. Here's what is great and being open about that. And being okay with people saying they're not interested. We try to sell people a dream or try to sell them smoke and mirrors to get them through the door where it's like, they're never going to buy anyway. Why are we wasting people's time? So the more you can respect people's time by being direct, the better off you are. Yeah. I saw uh pomp, you know, the crypto advocate, mm -hmm. he had this kind of breakdown of everything he did last year from a metric standpoint and it, his numbers are wild. But I remember the, the big takeaway I had was he had, you know, 10 lessons learned. And he said, haters become fans. And I was like, that rings true for sure. Because people can tell when you go with the wind, right? That you don't have any conviction, that you're not being yourself. I think people can smell that out, even in this day and age of, you know, online and social media and all this, the rest of it. 100%. Haters also can become your best fans. Some of my best customers were like the toughest intro calls or second calls or third calls or people that were like, I don't like what you're doing or, you know, say the worst things. Because when they do see, to your point, that you're consistent and that you're genuine, you will stick out from any crowd, any space you're in. You know, even the space I'm in now with my main focus being around lead generation, there's so much crap out there, so much sleaziness out there, frankly. And when you prove that you are, that you don't overpromise and underdeliver, in fact, you underpromise and overdeliver, that's when people say, I don't want to just give you money now, but I want to tell everybody that they should give you money and work with you because you're going to provide more value than the money that we're giving you. So in terms of the marketing space, you've been in the game for a while now, and you have a specialty within cold outreach lead gen, not to get too jargony, but could you walk us through that? I mean, we all seem inundated with emails. Yeah. You know, we're constantly updating our CRM. We're constantly trying to think about how to increase the top of our funnel, but in a thoughtful manner, right? But it's hard to get people's attention. Like even on the Zoom call, I've got Slack messages and G chats and text messages coming through and people are getting crushed with email. What do you think works these days? What we just talked about earlier, being simple and direct, and I'll speak specifically on email. I'm not an ex expert in Facebook ads, Instagram ads, creating billboards, newspaper copy. Like there's a lot of marketing I am not an expert in, but e cold email outreach, even just to give a little bit of background, the one thing we were exceptional at with my tech startup, we weren't, we didn't have a great product that was sticky. Our retention numbers were not great. That's why we didn't sell for the number that we wanted to. But what we were exceptional at was getting these biggest, the biggest customers in the world 
to get on phone calls with us and then eventually work with us. And that was all through cold email outreach. Everybody says cold email doesn't work. And they're right. Cold email does not work if you don't know what you're doing, just like in any marketing medium. So for example, what, what kind of emails do you typically just delete right away? Probably the emails that sound spammy, the emails that are super long, the emails that are not direct, the emails that you don't even know why they're reaching out to you. Like, what's the problem you solve? How are you a solution? And then what's your call to action? What do you want from me? Like, I'll see emails that are three, four, five paragraphs long. When I get a cold email that starts with, hi, I hope this email finds you well. I hope you and your family are doing well during this tough times during COVID. It's like, shut up. Nobody, I know you don't care about that. And I don't blame you for not caring about that. Show you respect me and my time by being direct to the point. Why are you reaching out to me? Why should I care? What's the problem to your solution? What, what's the problem? What's your solution? And what's the call to action? You know, do you have 15 minutes to hop on a phone call? Because if you know how to do that right, you can get great results. But it's just most people don't write an email in a way that they would want to receive an email. I think it goes against our human nature, which is why professionals like you exist, because in many ways it could be counterintuitive, right? You also have a specialty of, of you know, you're a business coach, right? And, and that's a term that gets thrown around way too much, in my opinion. I think it's like some of these people that become realtors because they don't have, you know, uh, yeah, enough right, to do right. with their lives. What motivated you to get into that business? Well, I've always loved just working, even when I had my tech startup, whenever someone say, Hey, can you talk to this person and give them advice? I always just, I love, I love anyone that has a desire to do more. That's just like my, whether you're a startup entrepreneur, whatever, if you have desire to do more and you're, I think a good person, like I just, I will probably like you and gravitate you and want to help you as much as I can. So that's number one. I did some advising with tech startups when we sold the company. And then I got approached a couple of years ago by this company called Eureka. It's an amazing company, U-R-E-E-K-A. Uh, Mr. Wonderful from Shark Tank is heavily involved. Early Facebook team members started it. The whole premise is they want to help small businesses get the resources to, to run their business more effectively. So that's where I do all of my business coaching. And it's all through a program that they created that I teach online, typically about once a week to small business owners from their, you know, they're probably in their low 30s all the way up to their mid to late 60s. So that's where I do all of my uh, coaching. And I, that's pretty much where I try to leave it because I like to spend my own time building, you know, my main business, but I, that's where I do my business coaching. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Get started by joining the Capital Club, where you'll get exclusive access to alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, and an affinity peer-to-peer -peer network of industry professionals. You can sign up by going to our website at www.excelsiorgp.com. Yeah, become a huge proponent for affinity networks or peer networks or however you want to term it. I think they can be super powerful, especially with tamping down the learning curve for a lot of people based on you know experience share with others. Mm -hmm. What are some characteristics or fact patterns that you see over and over again that are just basic building block things that entrepreneurs are just getting wrong right off the bat when they're starting their business? Yeah, I. I always say less is more. So in sales, when building out your website, no matter what, like especially as entrepreneurs, when we know so much about our business and when we care so deeply about our business, we just want to share that. We just want to tell more and more and more. We want to tell more details. Whether it's a sales call, a website, you want to keep things so simple and clear. 
especially in today's day and age. You know, I do some talks around Gen Z and the future of work because of my my previous tech company. And uh, they say Gen Z has an attention span of a goldfish, eight seconds, right? But I hate to break it to all of us. Every generation has a teeny tiny attention span. So whether you're out to lunch with somebody, whether you meet someone at a restaurant, whether you're on a sales meeting, a podcast, website, it doesn't matter. The more direct you can be into the point, the better. So that's one of the biggest mistakes. And I always say that details create confusion and a confused buyer is never a buyer. So our human nature is to give more information, more details, where that actually will have the negative effect. Because if you give someone one detail and they take it the wrong way, now they're going to disqualify themselves for a reason that may or may not even be a legitimate reason to actually disqualify themselves. So I'd say that's probably the most common mistake, that the most common tangible mistake that I see small business owners, entrepreneurs, salespeople in general constantly making. And do you see similarities over and over again to people that excel within the entrepreneurship world? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like, first of all, like one of my favorite quotes is from George Washington when he said, perseverance and spirit have done wonders in all ages. So like number one, it is not a short-term journey. If you really want to be an entrepreneur, it's not a short-term win, especially if you're just coming out of college, for example. But it doesn't really matter what business you start. It ain't a short-term win. You can make a heck of a lot more money and work less hours working for a, a more established company. So that's number one is you really have to have the grit and it's got to be within your DNA to be able to, uh, to go through the challenges that you're going to go through. So that's number one. And then number two, you either have to have a hyper product engineering focused background. And that could be even baking the best freaking cookies in the world. doesn't mean you have to be a tech person. Just what is that great product that you can build? Or three, you have to be a great salesperson. Because if, you, if you're not a great salesperson, you sure as heck are going to need somebody who can be a great salesperson to help you out. Because you got to sell. You got to make money. Yeah. The third one rings out for me because when I get pitched or I talk to people and you ask, well, what are you going to do with this capital raise? And so I'm going to hire a chief sales officer. I'm like, Meh. wrong answer. <laughs> because you can't outsource that, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you've got to be the chief evangelist for your firm. And whatever widget you're selling, you need to be the one on the front lines of it. Otherwise, you're not going to understand what's happening. And nobody can tell the story like you can, right? 100%. And, and I do think sales is a learnable skill. People think that sales, you have to be this charismatic, outgoing extrovert who just loves talking to people constantly. And that's not, that's not the case. Sales is so much about building trust. Do I feel like I know, like, and trust you? That doesn't mean, again, you need to be like the salesperson that is so personified on TV shows or movies. Like that can work, sure. But some of the best salespeople in the world are more introverted and they're just great at building trust and great at showcasing their value in a short, sweet manner. Yeah, I mean, look at Elon Musk. <laughs> he's a weird dude, but he's exactly. probably the world's best sales guy, right? <laughs> it's so true. It's yeah. so true. Um, and why is he such a good sales guy too? Why is Steve Jobs such a great sales guy? What do they do exceptionally well? They tell stories. They're such amazing storytellers. Like people also get confused. You need to be, you need to have every case study, every data point to prove your ROI and why you're better than the next. That's not true. Like, yes, of course that stuff helps. Of course, that's great. That's like marketing help. That's great. That that I'd rather have that than not have that. However, as human beings, we tend to buy off of emotion. We tend to buy off of a feeling, off of gut feeling. Do we trust this person that they can execute on what they're saying they can execute on? Let's go back to the Gen Z conversation. I, and I'm torn here. You know, as a millennial, there's a lot of talk about demographics and characteristics. 
And, and I think some of that's true, right? We are a product of our experiences from a cohort perspective. And I also think it gets overplayed, in my opinion. You're this Gen Z subject matter expert. What insights do you have for people out there who are part of the workforce interacting with the Gen Z generational cohort? Yeah. So first, and I, I do hear that a decent amount. And I, I think number one, human beings, whether you're, no matter what generation you are, no matter what part of the world you're in, we all want the same things, right? We all want to feel like we're being heard. We all want happiness. We all want love and connection. We all want those basic fundamental needs. Now, the reason why different generations uh, want different things or act a certain way is just because of exactly what you said, the different experiences that we have growing up that do shape us in certain ways, even with COVID. Like think about even two-year-olds, three-year-olds that think it's normal to wear a mask all day, every day. That's something that I didn't even know that was a thing three years ago. Now that's something that a whole generation thinks that that's the complete normal. So experiences do shape who we are. But the way I, in the most simple way, if you want to know Gen Z, there's just one acronym that you need to remember. It's ISA. So ISA, I is inclusivity. So these are three things that Gen Z cares about more than anything. And as an employer, if you're trying to engage with Gen Z, no matter what, if you think about these three things, it will probably help you substantially when engaging with Gen Zers, specifically in the workforce. So one is inclusivity. They need to see employers that that are that value genuinely inclusivity. It's no longer nice to have. It's a must have. And you think about why that matters to them. They grew up in the era of President Obama. They grew up in the era of gay marriage being legalized. Like that's that's all they know. S, stability. They value stability. And why do they value stability? They grew up during the financial crisis. Now they're going through what's happening with COVID, of course. They crave stability. So I hear a lot that Gen Zers are entrepreneur, an entrepreneurial generation. In a way they are, but they're much more of a side hustle gener generation where they want to have their main nine to five job that gives them that stability. And then they want to you know, practice their side hustle either in the morning or late at night. A, authenticity, bombarded with ads, you know, 8,000 ads per day. So they're a generation two that craves authenticity and employers that are actually genuine and authentic. So those are like the three main tips for anyone that's looking to engage better with Gen Z. And, and what are some, what are some no-nos here? What are some, you know, no-go zones for people, especially in the employer management side, if you're trying to engage with this community? Well, it would really be kind of the opposite of those three. You know, one is just being disingenuous. You know, you have to, you have to, Say what you mean and mean what you say. So that that's a big no-no. Is it, as long as you're as long as you're doing that, you'll be all right. But if you come across as disingenuous, you're going to be in bad shape. But it's really just doing the opposite of those three things. And you know, how much does that impact your coaching style when you're interacting with them on a business perspective? Do you? This is probably not the right application, but code switch if you're talking to an entrepreneur who's in their 50s versus somebody in their 30s. Yeah, for sure. I mean, depending on who you're talking to, that's like rule number one, right? Of like when you're doing a presentation, know your audience. Uh, so when we would have all of our interns and we had probably 50 or more interns during our time, all of which were Gen Zers and yeah, I had to do like, what is, I don't even know, like the hamburger thing, right? Where you say like a great thing and then something that you want improved upon and then another great thing. So it's, uh, I think, I believe it's called a shit sandwich. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Shit sandwich. And for me, I'm much more of a direct guy. I'm from New York, you know, as you know, obviously, like I, I like to speak direct. I like when people speak direct to me. So that was always a little bit of a challenge for me versus, yeah, when you're speaking to other older generations and that's that's who I'm coaching. I'm really not coaching too many Gen Zers. Although my sister, she's a Gen Zer and she's got her own business and she loves when I'm direct with her. But 
when I'm speaking older generations, you can be much more direct and to the point with Gen Z or sometimes you do have to fill in some, some, you know, a shit sandwich, as you said, (laughs) (laughs) you know, when I reached out to you and you did the intake form and I asked for your address, you said you're moving from place to place. And, uh, and I'm, I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile here. You, you don't have a city. You just have the United States. Would you identify yourself as a digital nomad? Yeah, it's kind of what I've become, which I never thought I would be that. You know, I was always like an in-office guy. I thought that was the only way to do it. But since we started building this business, it's the type of business that you could do anywhere from anywhere in the world. And we have employees that are all over the world as well. And I'm lucky that I've developed a great trust with my business partner uh, who I've been working with since my tech startup where we've been through, you know, every, you know, shitty, tough time you could possibly have. And neither of us turned our back. So that allows us the opportunity to work on two different time zones and two completely different places. Although we will be together for the most most part, the remainder of the year. But yeah, I've been bouncing around. I went to Italy in November then went to Switzerland. Then I was in Hawaii for a few months. I came to Austin, Texas for a month. That's where I am right now. And then I'm going to be going overseas for most likely the remainder of the year. Were you down there for South by Southwest? Is that why you no. Just missed it. Yeah, I just oh, got okay. here a couple of days ago. Yeah, just missed it. Nice. And do you see that continuing for you? For the time being, I I, I kind of live the way the same way I buy plane tickets. I just buy one-way tickets everywhere. And I kind of feel that out with my life too. Like if, if a certain place hooks me and I really want to stay there and my heart is there, then I'll stay there. But until that happens, I I don't I don't I haven't put an end date on this. Uh it could be, you know, whenever it feels right. I assume as a business coach, you have a peer business coach that's coaching you and that you have somebody that you can speak to in a unadulterated fashion. Do you get pushback there from other people saying that it's hard to have a sustainable, persistent culture if everybody's hundred percent remote all the time? Yeah, for, for sure. I'm a big, I love mentorship. I've become good friends with a lot of my mentors too. I even see my business partner in a lot of ways as a mentor as well. He's a little bit ahead of the journey than I am. So I do get a little bit of pushback that from that. But one of the things I do love, and first of all, I think this is where the world is going. It's much more remote. You're seeing some of the biggest, best companies in the world that are either going fully remote, remote optional, or remote for the majority of the time. So I do think that's where the world is going. So part of how I look at these different chapters of my life, I see it as I want to learn something in each business chapter that I have. And the big learning I want to get from this chapter is, can I build a successful business? You know, that's a keyword is a successful business, a sustainable business. And can I do it? Not only uh, me being completely remote, my business partner being completely remote, but while managing employees that are completely remote as well. I think if you can learn that skill for where the future is going, I think it'll be something that'll carry with me for the rest of my life. Yeah. It's interesting. We've, we've gone, you know, I don't like this term, but hybrid, right? Where mm-hmm. Monday, Friday, people work from home. And then I work with a lot of Gen Zers and they travel quite a bit, right? And I'm totally comfortable with that. I still think there is a place for the actual physical office. I think it's hard to build culture remotely, but mm-hmm. I agree with you. I think this is the direction we're heading in as a as a work culture. Yeah, exactly. Building a culture, I, I don't I don't know how you do that fully remote. Like our work culture at this point is very different. It used to be about like conscientiousness and teamwork and all these like you know great buzzwords. Now it's like, frankly, just do your job. Just we'll build the systems. We'll train you on how to do it. You do your work. You be honest. If you need anything, if you make a mistake, you let us know. We're going to have to put the guardrails in place, but it just get your job done. It's not about a fluffy office culture, not about even a company culture other than 
we need to execute on our job. And it just like Bill Belichick always says, do your job. And that's kind of how we operate as a, as a culture. But I mean, these are people that are from all parts of the world and they want to make sure they do their job because they need the money and uh, they need, they need the job. And and what are the the lessons learned from that, right? Being a hundred percent. I mean, you've been traveling around for, it sounds like the last two years now. That- no, no. I officially left New York in uh, most recently in November. So it's been about uh, six months now, probably. Oh, okay. Okay. Yep. And what's the thing that you didn't take into account before being kind of nomadic for the last six months? I'd be curious to hear any lessons learned from that perspective. So one is just, if anyone ever does live a nomadic life, just bring less than you you're going to, you're going to wear less and use less than you actually need. So that's less like a simple travel tip is just bring less stuff. It's going to be way less of a hassle. Just, you're only going to wear about six outfits anyway. So just bring less stuff because it's a pain in the ass that, you know, bring around multiple suitcases. So that's, that's one minor thing. But the second thing, and really the most important thing, because this is, it's not like this is vacation. Like it can feel like vacation sometime. It's awesome. It's great. I get to meet new places, meet new people, meet new cultures, all that stuff, but it's work. You know, it's not like I'm taking time off. Like my schedule is full just about every single day. So for us and for me, I was focused on how do I make sure that I adapt right away? When I travel, how can I take care of myself so that I'm not taking two days to like get my body back and my mind back? How can I bounce back right away so that I can execute at a high level? How can I adapt to the time zones? How can I get myself in a routine, you know, working out, you know, doing, you know, meditating and getting my body right, getting my mind right? How can I do that as quickly as possible so that there is no layover? Because if I can't do that, then I can't live a no, you know, quote unquote nomadic life while building a business. And I don't want to just be someone who's backpacking around the world, you know, finding myself. That's not what I'm trying to do here. Like I'm trying to explore the world because I think there's so many benefits from meeting new new people, meeting new cultures, meeting new perspectives. But I'm a business guy. Like I want to make sure that we're bringing in as much money as possible and adding as much value as possible to our customers. Well, like my father said, when we're getting ready for any big trip, get everything out and then pack half the amount of clothes and bring twice the amount of money is what he yeah, always said. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Smart man. Well, listen, you know, Adam, I want to thank you for coming on. This has been fun. And I appreciate the hustle that you have across the board, like just getting in touch with me, getting on the show. Obviously you're super passionate about what you do. If people are interested in learning more about the coaching or the sales or the marketing, just learning more about what you're, what you're up to around the world, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah. Thanks, Brian. So number one on Instagram, that's probably my social media site that I'm most active. And it's just at Adam I Rosen, R-O-S-E-N. My, our website for our email outreach company is eocworks.com. And my email is adam at eocworks.com. And I forgot to ask this on the pre-call as a fellow native New Yorker, this is an important one. Are you Yankees or Mets? I uh, unfortunately, although I don't know if I say this anymore, I'm a Mets fan. It's my boy. You're a Mets fan too? I'm feeling pretty good. Unfortunately. Of course you are. It's April. Just wait until August. You'll be feeling bad again. Don't worry. (laughs) Well, I did my, uh, I I don't know if this is a pro betting or, you know, against betting podcast, but one of the things my dad and I always do now, and this this is just a plain waste of money. So I don't recommend anyone do this. We always put uh, money on the Jets to win the Super Bowl, which is always just me just, you know, giving away money. Yeah. yeah. Um, (laughs) The donation. Exactly. Just the donation. But big Jets fan, uh, big Mets fan. I did, I did put some money on them to, to go far this year too. So I'm feeling good about the Mets this year, as long as we can get the ground healthy. A little future, little futures bet. Love it. Exactly. Well, um, 
Awesome, man. Thank you so much. I look forward to keeping in touch with you as you kind of track across the globe and uh, appreciate the time. No, for sure. Thanks so much for having me, Brian, and really looking forward to staying in touch with you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review, and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon.